just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. So who's hitting? Who's hurting? Who's rising and falling? I'll ask Ray Murphy about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 10th. It's show number four of the 2023 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday news edition for you. We'll have our Market Watch player news reports, Ray Murphy covering the hitters, including Bryce Harper, Jordan Walker, Seiya Suzuki, and more. And then Ray looks at the latest pitcher news from spring training, including Carlos Rodon, Jose Quintana, James Paxton, and more. It's another big Friday news edition, so thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Spring training is underway, and so is the World Baseball Classic. We gotta talk some baseball. Yes, the 2023 World Baseball Classic is underway, with 20 teams in four pools of five, playing on two continents. In Pool A, Japan is off to a 2-0 start with wins over China and Korea, and Japan can guarantee a slot in the next round by beating the Czech Republic on Saturday. But don't think the Czechs are going to be any kind of pushover. They beat China in their first game. In Pool B, the Netherlands, led by Xander Bogarts, is also 2-0, with a huge upset win over Cuba, followed by a win over Panama. The Netherlands can punch their ticket with a win over Chinese Taipei or Italy in the next couple of games. The field of 20 teams will be narrowed to 8 after the pools are done. The top two teams in each pool will move on to the quarterfinals in a single elimination bracket style tournament with the championship game set for Tuesday, March 21st in Miami. It's interesting to follow the WBC because it gives us a real chance to see the big leaguers playing in a context that is, shall we say, more competitive than your average spring training game. Enjoy the World Baseball Classic. And in the first inning of this Friday News Edition, we're going to be talking about the hitters from spring training with BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and writer, Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Happy Friday, PD. Before we start talking about the news, how was first pitch Florida? You just wrapped it up. Yeah, that was last weekend. It was fantastic. We had a really good weekend of, uh, you know, a lot of baseball talk, plus three labor drafts, plus uh, Jordan Walker's coming out party, which was the other fun thing about the weekend. We were actually at uh, the full crew of attendees were at the Saturday game when he uh, announced his announced his presence with uh, about 900 feet of home runs and a couple of doubles on top of it. It was the uh, so he, he quickly became the buzz of the weekend, as it were. 
And I'd like to talk to you about uh, Jordan Walker and how his hot start in spring has affected his draft position and how it should have affected his draft position and questions of that nature. You mentioned that you guys hosted the labor auctions at First Pitch Florida. I assume that you and Brent and uh, maybe some other guys from Baseball HQ were in those drafts, but where did you draft and how did it go? Yeah, I was in the labor mixed auction, which was the Sunday afternoon auction. Uh, let's see if I can do this off the top of my head. Uh, Friday night was n- the labor national league. Doug Dennis was in that one for HQ. Saturday was uh, AL with Dave Adler, and I'm the mixed league guy. On Sunday, that was a 12 team mixed. Brent ended up in that auction too because uh, one of the one of the attendees couldn't make it, so Brent j- jumped in as a. Uh, one of the draftees, I should say, could make it. Brent jumped in as the proxy proxy uh, auctioner for Craig Mish, uh, the Marlins beat writer. So, um, yeah, that was fun. Uh, you know, 12-team mixed, a lively room. Uh, you know, Nick Pollock from Pitcher List, Ariel Cohen, uh, Shelley Verugstraight, um, Brent, as I mentioned, uh, you know, seven or eight others. It was, uh, it was a fun... Uh, four and a half hours of auctioning. And then I basically ended up having to like run for the airport as I was making my reserve picks. So it was lively. (laughs) It is, uh, you know, our mutual friend, Gene McCaffrey said to me once a long time ago, there's no such thing as rational pricing in a 15 team mixed auction because of the enormous amount of free agents that are left at the end, that the pricing structure kind of goes out the window. How have you found the pricing in 15 team mix versus the more usual 12 team only league formats where the uh, pickings are a lot slimmer and the pricing therefore becomes a lot more important? Yeah. This league is in fact, even more extreme example of what Gene talked about. Cause the, uh, the mixed league is a 12 team mix. So it is super shallow and, you know, the pricing, you know, leaves all kinds of room to just willy nilly throw as much money as you want at the top end talent because the $1 pool is so good. In fact, into the reserve rounds, it's not uncommon. In fact, I did this. Um, I was collecting starting pitchers in the reserve round to fill up my staff after having like taken closer shots with like my last, you know, one dollar guys in the auction part and you know was if you looked at my roster after rostering the starting 23 you would have thought i was like way short on innings but i just compensated by collecting you know replacement level starting pitchers 12 team mixed replacement level starting pitchers in the reserve round and filling out my staff there and those guys will by all means start for me eat up innings and be the you know sort of bulk of my staff yeah, how much did you spend on your top priced guy, and who was it? Uh, it was mine. Was uh, mine was Garrett? Wasn't my top priced guy, but I did buy. It was kind of starts and scru- stars and scrubs on the pitching side because I did buy Garrett Cole, and then I, uh, you know, there were single digit buys, and single digit buys and twelve team mixed were like you know Kershaw and Sale, right? You know? Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't exactly down to say i don't know pick somebody merrill kelly you know it was still better than that um (laughs) um, but uh on the hitting side um pulling it up now uh my top bats were jordan alvarez and mookie bats both in the mid-30s um overall you know and overall i was i would say like the bidding was fairly conservative it wouldn't be surprising given the dynamic i was talking about to see 
top hitters going for you know 50 bucks or more uh but acuna went for 47 judge went for 44 uh jose ramirez was over 40 as well i believe um 42 for ramirez yeah those were the uh that was sort of the top tier of the bidding it doesn't seem like that's much higher than they would be in a regular auction in a 12 team only league you know, I, I can see uh, Judge and Ramirez in an AL only, maybe 37, 38. Yeah, you could have gone, you know, it's the, every league has its own dynamic, right? Uh, you could certainly see, and I think you will see, like, uh, you're going to be at a uh, tout mixed um, in a couple of weeks, I think, and or you're going to be at tout wars. But in the tout mixed, dra- mixed auction, which Brent does every year, that's a 15-teamer, but just, there are some people there who will, push it even harder and we'll run guys up to north of 50 bucks. This one, for whatever reason, you know, we've been doing this for four years now, I think with, you know, pretty much the same people. And it's just a little bit more of a conservative room that way. And, you know, leagues take on their own characteristics like that. Yeah. We always say, know your league rules, but know your league competition is as important or almost as important as knowing the rules, especially in a situation, as you mentioned, where you're playing with the same people and you should start to be able to get a read. It's like playing poker with the same guys all the time. You know, you should be able to figure out what their main tells are and how they like to behave when they're bluffing versus when they got the mortal nuts, as they say. And, um, you're also going to be putting a a first pitch online uh, this weekend. Is that not right? That is exactly right. It's uh, this Saturday. We're going to go for, <coughs> you know, other than bio breaks and stuff, uh, 12 straight hours on Zoom. It's going to be a great time. Uh, Brent and I have been firming up that schedule all week. A little bit of overlap with what with the proceedings in Florida last week, you know, minus the live look at Jordan Walker, but also a bunch of new stuff, you know, given that it's a week later and at this time of year, a week makes a big difference. We're trying to be sort of, shall we say, news heavy and timely this weekend and talk about, you know, not just the new rules, for instance, to pick one common topic of conversation, but the new rules based on what we know after watching two winnings of two, two weeks of spring training games. Right. And similarly, we've got enough information coming out of camps now to talk about, uh, your classic topics like spring training, pitching velocity gainers and guys who are throwing new pitches and stuff like that. So we've got panels and all of that stuff. Obviously, injuries are a hot topic and you know, closer battles and all that stuff. It's really the 12-hour crash course. You could have been living under a rock all winter and not consuming any news. And if you sit on Zoom for 12 hours tomorrow by Sunday morning, you will be fully up to speed and ready to go right to your draft table. And possibly hung over. I, you know, <laughs> not, that, that's up to the individual <laughs> attendee. We will, we will not be serving drinks over Zoom, but, you know, yeah. that's not to say that they will not be spied on camera, right? Well, I was thinking literally or figuratively, 12 hours of uh, fantasy baseball can give you a hangover if you didn't touch a drop. Uh, I it, should say it's also recorded, so oh, yeah. you know, if, you need to, if you need to bail out after uh, so many hours on Saturday and then consume it a couple of hours at a time on Sunday and into the week afterwards, that's totally fine too. So you can uh, consume it at the, at your best way of uh, absorbing information. Assuming somebody does want to take it in live, Ray, when does it start? When does it end? And how do you sign up? 
it runs 11 a.m. to 11 p.m. on Saturday. That's March 11th. Uh, there's a computer screen logo right on the right side of the HQ homepage. If you go click on that, uh, you can register for it. And once you're registered, there's another link right on the top of that page that says, hey, you already paid. Click here to come inside. And when you do that, the, you go to that page. The Zoom link is there. The whole schedule is there. The Q&A form is there. All of that kind of stuff that, uh, you know, as, as we joke in the uh, promotional materials, uh, you know, we love the live events, but, you know, we got a lot of practice at these Zoom events over the last couple of years, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we developed a skill and we might as well keep using it because we do understand not everyone can get to Florida for a weekend. Not everyone can get to Arizona for a weekend in the fall. And, you know, Zoom is just, uh, you know, a great medium for getting people together without the, uh, you know, physical and financial encumbrances of travel. Uh, it's a great idea. And, and just another example of how baseball HQ is really expanding in the cyber space over the last couple of years, a lot more video. Of course, we've been kind of, we were on the leading edge of podcasting back when Ron started baseball HQ radio in 2006. And in fact, Ron getting into the web was pretty much of a pioneer in that regard. So it's a, it's a logical next step, I think, for what baseball HQ has always done, which is take advantage of every communications method there is and, and try to find a niche where it makes sense to offer the the content in that channel and, and then to optimize it for that channel and so forth. Uh, it's a pretty interesting evolution. We've literally come a long way from being a uh, subscription fax service. And that's, in fact, that's the first time I saw Baseball HQ was a subscription fax. And it was another guy's fax. It was a guy, it was a guy in my league. <laughs> and I went oh, over. No, it was a, a fax of a fax? No, no, he, he had the fax on his couch. I was over at his house visiting. Oh, okay. And he had a newborn son and, the, and he had a, the little baby monitor. And the kid started crying in his bedroom and, and, Perry, his name was, he kind of tried to furtively stuff this uh, piece of uh, fax paper or this sheaf of fax paper under the pillow on the sofa so I wouldn't see it. But of course, that just drew more attention to it. But being the kind of obviously polite and ethical guest I was, as soon as he got out of sight, I grabbed it. And uh, <laughs> hey, look at this. What's this? And actually, that's how I ended up working for Baseball HQ because there was an ad in the Baseball HQ fax. It, it, you know, Do you think you could contribute? Send us an, send us an email. And, and the rest, as they say, is history. I've been in a few drafts myself. I, I don't draft that much. Ray, as you know, but uh, the last couple of weeks I've started Razball, I finished TGFBI, and I was expecting to see some runs on second base, third base, and first base, but what I've seen has been just crazy runs on second base, first base, and third base that really deplete the top talent within the first couple of rounds. I saw Altuve, Semyon, and Chisholm all going round one, round two. Uh, Ramirez, Devers, Machado, and Riley all in round one, round two. Freeman, Guerrero, Alonzo, Goldschmidt all in round one and round two. And if you're not at the front of that run, you stand a pretty excellent chance, depending on where you're drafting in the in the snake, of not getting one of those guys. And the drop-offs in all three instances are pretty severe. Yeah, I was just going to say that last part is really what matters, right? And that's um, that's that was the point I was going to make. There are... It's not so much how many of the guys, like if you look at the the value degradation curves or whatever you want to call it, um, Rotolab always has one, one, of, one of these where by position it shows sort of how the dollar values drop off. And third base is a particularly sharp one this year where you, you know, because it starts so high, you have 
Ramirez and Machado and Devers and Riley all up in the top, you know, 12 hitter values probably. And then it gets really quiet for a long time. Like I'm looking at a draft board now from one of my recent drafts and you get Arenado in round three and then literally nothing until Bregman in round seven and then Gunnar Henderson in round eight. And then before you know it, it's round 10 and you're looking now there's another cluster of guys. There's Max Munstein and Eugenio Suarez and Justin Turner. And now you're back in business again. But if you're, you're but you're right, if you are not able to snag one of those four guys way up top, you're either going to be reaching for a third baseman or worrying about filling other positions. And that could be fine. You know, there are plenty of other positions you can go fish in. But um, as you run into these things, there's, you know, you, you, you kind of want to plan for this, right? And it starts with your first round pick. If you get um, Ramirez or if you get go shortstop with Trey Turner or one of those, you know, if you're filling one of those positions that tends to have a dead spot, you know, further on down the snake, you kind of need to know that that's coming. So you're not surprised by it because otherwise you'll end up making some suboptimal decisions or having to go collect pitchers and outfielders over and over again, because those are sort of always available in the draft, but you got to know to pick a spot or get one of those guys that like a Bregman that I mentioned, who's kind of like an Island in the position, right? If you get, you know, you can find a sort of a way station somewhere through the, 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 that value desert, but you kind of got to know where it is because you're probably not going to find it on the fly. Well, the league that I'm talking about in particular is a points league. It's a snake draft, but it's a points league best ball type of scenario with 42 roster positions. And what I found is everybody in the draft seems to have taken their value sheet and largely just thrown it over their shoulder and started flying by the seat of their pants, promoting some guys four or five rounds. You know, you start seeing a bit of a catcher panic, and the next thing you know, William Contreras is is coming up instead of being in the ninth or tenth round where he probably belongs, is being drafted in the sixth round. And I also, in hindsight, looked at my own experience. I had the seventh pick and took uh, Kyle Tucker, which ordinarily you'd think, yeah, Kyle Tucker, seventh best guy pretty much, you know, pretty good choice. And I realized afterwards I probably would have been better off taking Machado because I would have got in on on – uh, solving one of the positions, and then I could have started filling the other positions, and I compounded the error by taking um, Bo Bichette with my second pick because I just wanted to get that all-round, you know, one-two punch with lots of category fill. But there's lots of shortstops, and there's not lots of third basemen, and there's not lots of second basemen. So in the third round, I grabbed Marcus Semien, but but by the time my next turn came around, all of the third basemen and all of the first basemen, the top guys, all gone. And so now I'm looking, you know, down at that second tier, the Alex Bregman level and trying to figure out what to do in the meantime. And you start stuffing pitchers in there, but then some of the guys who also didn't get first baseman or third baseman are starting to promote first baseman and third baseman up from the 14th round to the 10th round. And now you're looking even deeper into the draft. And I guess the point I'm trying to make is it really might pay you to just load up on those very short positions as quickly as you can in those first two rounds almost irrespective of where the guy falls on the actual value curve. Yeah, I was struggling with that myself. I was in the Rasball <coughs> um, draft to <coughs> a different one than you, obviously. But um, even looking at the values in Rotolab, where it just shows all, you know, all the positional columns and every player's 
projected point total, right? And, and in some sense, it's so freeing to not have to worry about categories and chasing speed and that kind of stuff. But I was trying to strike that balance in what you're talking about, because on the one hand, it just, you know, is so ingrained in me that you should be taking the highest point total on the board, right? But on the other hand, you know, you sort of quickly realize that what matters isn't the top point total on the board as much as it is which position currently shows like a 50 point gap between the first guy and the second guy. Right. Um, and you're trying to sort of optimize and, you know, get a, get, get a, um, you know, sort of incremental leg up on the field by grabbing the guy who has that 50 point bump over everyone else who's available. And if you see that there are four first basemen who are all available and project within 20 points of each other, then you can be like, yeah, I'll wait for them for next time. But where's the, you know, quote unquote scarcity? It's the it's the points league version of that is is probably the best way to describe it, right? Yeah, and I did that with my spreadsheet. I I I've done that for years in this league, and I just didn't think to use it in the early going. I just thought I'll get my foundation and then I'll start figuring it out by marginal gain on 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 each of these guys. And so I have a column that says how far ahead of the next guy at this position is this guy at this position. And, uh, had I done that and just been disciplined about using it, I think I would have been ended up in way better shape. I mean, it's 42 guys and it's best ball. So I don't think it's a catastrophe if you don't get, if you'd have to take Alex Bregman, uh, instead of Manny Machado, or if you have to take Rowdy Tellez instead of Paul Goldschmidt, because in any given week, one of them might outscore the other anyway. And, and that's how the computer's going to score the league. So it, it's, I don't think it's as dire as if it was some kind of straight, um, counting league where you had to ma- like a, a draft champions league where you have to put your own guys in every week. Only your guys that you chose those 23 guys count for the week and you miss the ones that you don't have in your active roster. So it's something for, for you to think about if you're listening to the podcast here and you have some uh, drafts coming up, especially in these points league formats, be cognizant of the fact that your league mates may start runs on players that are way, way early on, on their actual value, just to get, make sure that they get one of those top guys. And you should probably be wanting to get top guys at those three positions, plus catcher, I would argue as well. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ray Murphy, the co-general manager and analyst at BaseballHQ.com. And Ray, let's get on to the news, which is the whole point of a news edition after all. I saw a news report, I think uh, on Friday, late Thursday or early Friday, that quoted Philadelphia outfielder and designated hitter Bryce Harper saying that he plans to return just after the All-Star break. He plans to do that. He was, it didn't sound like he was guessing or estimating. He said he was going to be back. Now, I have kind of a two-part question. Do you take this as news versus noise? And if it is news, how are you advising people to value Bryce Harper when it comes time to go into a draft, say this weekend or, or sometime closer to opening day? Yeah, I think that's probably not major news, or at least it's within the range of the outcomes that we thought we would see, uh, you know, really ever since they announced he had the surgery. Um, We've been projecting at HQ 50% playing time for him for the last couple of months now. Now, to be fair, as we often, as we always talk about, usually in July, not in March, the all-star break is not really the halfway point of the season. It's a little bit after that. So it might be that 50% is actually a little bit on the optimistic side right now. Um, but, you know, that again, that's, you know, probably a five or 
rounding error at this point that's within the range of outcomes. I did see a tweet the other day that said if you took the number of days that it took Shohei Otani to go from having his Tommy John surgery to being back in the majors DHing um, based on the date of the surgery and all of that. It, it, that that metric put Harper at like June 29th or something like that. So, <clears throat> you know, maybe there, you know, maybe we're just being really careful with our $300 million asset and planning to give him a couple of extra weeks or leaving some room for, you know, the surprise on the happy side if he continues to check boxes and, you know, ends up a little bit ahead of that schedule. I think I saw the the earlier news before these quotes from Harper was that he was hitting off a tee at least every other day or something like that. So he's at least back to swinging a bat. So none of this um, alters really my perception of how to use Harper this year. And the biggest component of that is always, you know, back to our earlier point, know your league rules. If you don't have IL spots, if you're like in an NFBC format with a fixed bench size, it's awfully expensive to carry Harper for half season. But if you're in Tout Wars or Labor or one of the formats that give you unlimited DL spots and it's just the cost of a draft pick to put Harper on the IL and then replace him in your first fab period and he doesn't cost you a roster spot until you activate him, that's a very different calculus. So as and then you get into the fact of, you know, what if he's dropped in a keeper league and you can get him at a discount and, you know, and you know, maybe pay too much for him this year but still have him back when he's hopefully outfield eligible and a full-timer again in 2024. You know, it's uh, th- those are kind of the permutations that I think you have to be thinking about. In Texas, the center fielder, Leody Tavares, uh, found himself with a mild oblique brain. It's going to sideline him for at least two weeks, and the news sparked renewed interest in one of baseball's genuine speed guys, uh, Rod Fusdell, <laughs> in playing time today, covering Tavares' injury and wondering whether it's going to open the door for Bubba Thompson in center field for the Rangers. What do you think? I mean, it seems like that's going to be what happens with, uh, you know, for however long Tavares is out. Um, Bubba was probably on the roster bubble, as we said, and maybe, you know, it was, it was going to lean toward being in the minors because he probably needs to be playing rather than being the fifth outfielder on a bench. Although being a fifth outfielder on a bench who can pinch run has probably also got some value to the major league team. So I don't know which way that would have gone, but yeah, now it seems like it is his opportunity to Thompson's opportunity to sort of take the job and run with it. I still think we'll see Tavares back in that role as soon as he is up for it. Um, but then, you know, maybe Tavares, maybe Thompson makes enough of a play to stick around and be that, part-time stolen base source because as you alluded to at the top the stolen base skill here is elite so it really is uh i saw a story about him that said he's like second in major league baseball in sprint speed which is something and had 48 stolen bases at triple a and of course we're having the larger bases this year and i think i read somewhere that the uh he had three caught stealings, and two of them were oversliding the bag and getting caught on replay afterwards, something like that. I think it, that you're right that uh, it looks like Tavares is probably going to miss maybe 10 days of prep, and he might 
maybe miss a week of the, fir- the first week of the season. And I don't know if that's going to be enough to justify w- putting a spot into Bubba Thompson, except maybe in American League only leagues where, you know, by the time you get to that stage of your draft, you're looking for somebody who's got anything to offer at that point, even in the outfield. And, and uh, Thompson kind of makes some sense as a guy who's not going to play enough to kill you with his bad batting average, but might offer you 25 bags for the, for a dollar at the end of the draft and 25 bags in an only league is not nothing. Yeah. 100%. And let, and you know, let's be fair. The, the upside on Thompson is more than, you know, the fourth or fifth outfielder pinch runner who gets, you know, 25 stolen bases and 200, 200 plate appearances. I mean, that's one way this could play out, but the upside or the, the, the real ceiling comes into play if, even if Tavares was healthy, if Tavares started the year was underwhelming in center field. And meanwhile, Thompson, who's shown some growth in on base percentage in recent years, goes down to triple A, really demonstrates the ability to put the bat on the ball, to take the walk, to get an, get his on base percentage up. And then come, you know, sometime in May, they decided to swap the two and give Thompson the everyday job. And he ran with it from there, literally. That would be the upside here. And that's how you get you know, 40 plus stolen bases in play for him this year. So maybe, maybe that opportunity is coming earlier. Maybe this won't be a big enough window for him to actually push Tavares out of the picture. But, um, you know, if nothing else, it's, I think the only thing we can say for sure is for the first couple of weeks while Tavares is out, Thompson makes an early pickup candidate and maybe you bank five steals before Tavares goes back and Hey, five steals is five steals. Yeah, it's a half a standing gains point, roughly, I think. And and the other question is, could he stick as some kind of a defensive replacement? When you look at the Texas outfield, I think that left field is far from an established certainty. Yeah, sure. That's a possibility. You know, there's a role there for the, you know, come in off the bench for defense where we're winning or pinch running where we're losing or taking second base in the 10th inning when we're tied, right? That's... Uh, that can sort of, you know, you can, you can make a living that way. It may not be his best, best path to value this year toward my previous point, but in real baseball terms, you know, that's a decent way to use his skills. You mentioned earlier, Ray, that you guys got to see Jordan Walker in spring training in Florida during first pitch Florida, and he's certainly been mashing so far this spring. And Zach Larson looked at Jordan Walker in playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. And the issue, of course, is that Walker's an outfielder and the Cardinals are already loaded. They've got a log jam out there with uh, Walker, Dylan Carlson, Tyler O'Neill. I think Carlson's hurt a little bit. Uh, Juan Yepes, Brendan Donovan. You got all of these guys. Lars Newtbar, I think, is more of a fixture. But you've got all these guys kind of musical chairing their way around, trying to figure out who's going to be the two guys that are uh, two spots that are available for five guys. And how does Zach foresee the Cardinals allotting playing time if Walker continues to basically just slug his way into the lineup? Yeah, Zach's take here matched with what I heard in Florida from uh, Brian Walton, who's uh, you know, one of, who was one of our speakers and labor participants and a Cardinals expert. They both think that it's Dylan Carlson who is somewhat at risk here uh, for a number of, reasons, number of reasons. Of course, he had uh, sort of an underwhelming rookie campaign himself last year, and he's been uh, dealing with some sort of arm problem that they're describing is just fatigue. But for both of those reasons, they've swung Tyler O'Neill over to 
center field, which even before that Jordan Walker sort of coming out party last Saturday um, was Walton said that was kind of a shot across the bow at Carlson to put him on notice that, you know, Walker, among others, they have, you know, the, the Cardinals are rich in prospects with uh, Brendan Donovan, another one who's pushing for playing time that could cause a domino effect here. But um, Walker has certainly announced his presence. And let's not forget uh, the new rules around compensatory draft picks and bonuses for rookies of the year who start the year on the roster, uh, on the big league roster, and then, you know, finish high in the rookie of the year balloting there there are compelling reasons for the cardinals to give walker that opportunity if they think he's ready so that's that, you know that's something new this year new last year out of the new cba that we saw you know a couple of times but um i, I think is probably something that we want to be mindful of as the spring goes on here and baseball hq's team analysts have given walker a 15 percent bump in his playing time they docked carlson i think by 10 and o'neill got docked by five so uh, it looks like baseball hq believes that walker is here to stay at least for the short run and of course we don't know that Jordan Walker, we suspect that Jordan Walker is going to be terrific based on his pedigree, but there's also the whole, was it Tuffy Rhodes? The guy who had uh, slugged like oh, sure. 600, 6,000 in his first week in spring training and, you know, was not around for very much longer. That possibility exists. And also, I haven't seen any in-depth analysis of who was pitching when, when, uh, when Walker was getting all of this uh, production out of his bat, so it could be that once he starts facing 100% big league pitching that things will change as well. But meanwhile, how are you playing Walker in drafts? How are you going to be looking at Jordan Walker having seen him and now having to think about these issues as you get to the, the, last, the last few drafts of your uh, spring training? I'm just not wired to be the guy who to be the drafter who jumps on these helium guys. Um, I will never pay the premium price. Uh, you know, for instance, I was in one draft last weekend that, you know, literally a couple of hours after Walker's explosion, he went in, I think the 10th round of a 15 team mixed. And then in my labor auction on Sunday, he went, he was well into the double digits. It might've been $16 or something like that. That's just way too rich for me. Um, I will bow out of the bidding well before that every time. And if I get beat by the guy who, you know, gets, uh, who buys the Jordan Walker hype, then, you know, so be it. I'll go spend my $16 on somebody who's been <laughs> around for more than five minutes, um, you know, fantasy wise and see if I can beat you that way. And if I can't, oh, well, so be it. Tenth round in both of my, uh, in snakes that I've, been in TGFBI and Rasball 10th round, both cases. Uh, some bad news for Colorado, like they need more of that. Uh, they lost second baseman Brendan Rogers. I still haven't heard anything super official, but it sounds like a pretty serious injury. And Alan Davison of BaseballHQ.com says in playing time today that we expect that uh, Brendan Rogers is going to miss a significant amount of time or the whole season. Assuming that we're looking at a significant amount of time or the whole season, how does losing Rogers change the outlook for Colorado's playing time and the outlook for some of the guys who benefit to be fantasy contributors? Yeah, big blow for the Rockies, and they had, you know, if there's quote unquote good news here, it's that they have a number of options to replace him. Uh, you know, they've said that Ryan McMahon's probably going to shift over to second base. 
and that frees up third base for maybe <clears throat> El Juris Montero. They just signed Mike Moustakis this week, which is, you know, maybe, well, let's just say it's on brand for the Rockies, right? Um, there's uh, Alan Trejo is another candidate to step in. Harold Castro is a non-roster invitee who could jump right into second base. So in terms of depth, they have it. In terms of exciting depth, um, not much here. Productive depth, useful depth. <laughs> Any adjective you want to slap on the word depth works there. Yeah, I, I saw the Mustakas and uh, the description you put on it is it just sounds like a Rockies move. It does sound like a Rockies move. And just because, I mean, Mustakas hasn't done anything since 2019 that I can remember. And of course, it could be that injuries, COVID, there's lots of excuses why that might have been the case. But I don't know that I'll be first in line to get Mike Mustakas. I don't even think he got drafted in either of my drafts. Uh, certainly not the. Uh, the TGFBI draft, which just finished the reserve rounds and nobody was interested. Uh, speaking of losing guys, the Dodgers lost infielder Gavin Lux for the season with a torn ACL. Uh, Jock Thompson covers the Dodgers for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. We know that Lux was apparently supposed to be the starter at shortstop for LA, so who gets 600 plate appearances? Probably no one person. I think Miguel Rojas is going to take over as the Punitive starting shortstop, but he's a glove first option. You know, as you, we, they picked him up from the Marlins this year. Um, he'll swipe a bag occasionally, but uh, a lot of soft contact there. And he's age 34, so not a lot of reason to expect a bounce in a new scenario here. But, you know, he's glove first. The Dodgers will value that, and he gives them, you know, coverage, I guess is probably the best way to put it. Uh, the other internal option seems to be Chris Taylor, of course, the man of you know, many positions in recent years. Um, I think he might have gotten to the point where he is maybe faking shortstop a little bit if they ask him to do that, or at least relative to Rojas, it's a defensive downgrade. But there's more life in that bat. A career 765 OPS, you know, sort of a double-digit home run and stolen base guy for uh, – for a full season, if he were to play a full season in multiple positions, which, you know, is a lot better than what we get from Rojas. Um, so I would imagine you'll see both of them from the Dodgers based on, you know, everything from starting pitching matchups to opposing starting pitching matchups to what they feel like they need defensively. Let's not forget the Dodgers offense is a little watered down this year without Trey Turner, among others. That lineup is not as long and imposing as it was a year ago so it may very well be that they need to lean on taylor a little bit more to add some depth to that lineup i heard somebody say on a podcast that the dodgers approach is they feel like they can be strong up the middle defensively because they've been so stout offensively everywhere else then all of a sudden the the, the turner loss in particular is pretty tough and then you put max muncie over at second apparently this year, and he's certainly not going to make anybody forget Willie Randolph or you know, somebody who's terrific glove-wise there. So it might seem that they can't really afford to throw another weak bat into the middle of their defensive lineup for the sake of defense when they have lost so much punch everywhere else. I think that's a valid concern. I think this is, you know, just to stick on the same point, this is, this is not your 2022 Dodger offense or anything close to it. And they may have to make 
you know, they, they may not be able to be so um, dogmatic, shall we say, about their lineup approaches. They may need to make some defensive compromises to get the run production going. Will that be the unraveling of the secret sauce that has sort of allowed the Dodger pitchers to, to as a staff, outpitch their skills for the last couple of years? Uh, we haven't really cracked that. Uh, to, to know what it is that they're doing. But if defense is a part of it, then it's going to be a challenge for them to maintain that defense this year. And of course, you know, still score some runs. Dodgers were a pretty aggressive defensive shifting team, and they seem to really have figured out how to combine all those variables, the pitcher style, pitcher hand, uh, pitchers relative vulnerabilities to left-handed hitting, especially, and really brought down the, uh, ERAs of their pitchers relative to their XERAs or Sierras or whatever you want to say. And now they get kind of a double whammy. They lose Trey Turner, a good defensive shortstop, and they lose the shift and they have to put Muncie, as I mentioned, so a triple whammy at second base. All of a sudden that this might be a hidden effect of all of these changes is that you might want to be a little bit, uh, a little bit circumspect when you're looking at Dodger pitchers this year. If you're expecting, uh, you know, Julio Arias to be a top 10 starter, yeah, you know, he could be, but it's not nearly as likely as it would have been at this time last year. Yeah. And to take it a step further, you know, Urias by, you know, he's as guilty of as anyone of outpitching their skills, but I'd probably be <coughs> even more circumspect than I already was about, chasing uh, Tony Gonsolin repeat or a Dustin May completely smooth return from uh, his, his surgery, you know, right on down the line that, you know, the back end of that rotation is probably is uh, as you know, probably even more prone to get punished by this than, uh, than Urias at the top end. Tony Gonsolin has more wide variance of opinion in the sort of fantasy expert community than practically anybody else in baseball. I think that a lot of people think he's being undervalued. A lot of people think he's being overvalued and nobody seems to think he's being correctly valued. So I guess if you're looking at Tony Gonsolin, I guess you got to try to read your room or something like that. Uh, the Cubs and fantasy players had high hopes for outfielder Seiya Suzuki this year, but everyone's going to be disappointed. He's already announced he's going to miss the World Baseball Classic, and he's going to miss the start of the season. The team called it a moderate oblique strain and no timetable for his return, which sounds ominous. Ryan Williams covers the Cubs for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. Ray, what's the scoop on Suzuki's status? Not a lot of clarity as far as how long he'll be out. I guess mostly because we don't need to know yet. I have a feeling if this was the regular season, we'd have a better estimate. But uh, the Cubs have the the luxury of taking the wait and see approach and checking in when we get closer to opening day. Uh, for now, with the guidance that opening day is unlikely for him, uh, we've chopped ten percent off of his playing time. Assume he's going to miss. You know that's a uh, you know that that's that that's a couple of weeks and we can adjust from there as necessary um it's probably patrick wisdom and trey mancini who will pick up the bulk of the right field at bats for suzuki in the first week or two or however long this takes so um you know those guys you know are slated to be extra outfield first base dh types so uh you know they have multiple paths to playing time it's not even necessarily that we would project an increase for them here because it might just be that they're 
um, picking up a piece of the, you know, each picking up some of the part-time playing time that we were projecting for them already. Bit of a cascade there as Patrick Wisdom was supposed to be also in the mix at third base. So if he's out there patrolling the pasture, what happens at the hot corner as far as playing time? Yeah, this might be where the extra roster spot for Suzuki's IL stint comes from. It could be any of Nick Madrigal, Edwin Rios, the former Dodger is in their camp. Uh, Christopher Morell is still kicking around here too, and he's another versatile type who could either be out in the pasture himself or place at third base. So all three of those guys are probably competing for Suzuki's roster spot. Um, and Morell may have... You know, it's hard to say Morel or Madrigal could have an edge because they could play other infield positions as well. Whereas Rios is more of a first base, third base type DH. And we, as we mentioned, they already have guys like wisdom and Mancini, uh, you know, competing for those spots. So it might be that uh, a more functional bench gets created with Madrigal or Morel, but we'll wait and see. When I first heard that uh, Tyrone Taylor was going to miss the first month of the season with a sprained right elbow, I thought, eh, you know, not that big a deal. But it was kind of a big deal. I didn't realize that he was scheduled for the lion's share of the playing time in one of the outfield slots in Milwaukee. We had him down for 85 or 90% of the of the right field playing time. Alan Davison covers the Milwaukee club for playing time today at baseballhq.com. How does Tyrone Taylor's injury affect the playing time mix for the Brewers? Yeah, this was kind of a big deal. You sort of forget, or, you know, I will, I guess I was in the same camp as you. And then I, I guess I didn't fully process over the off season, the extent to which Taylor was sort of a linchpin of the outfield plans in Milwaukee here. You, you think last year, you know, what I remember about him is him having sort of the, good side of the platoon or wasn't really a platoon, but it was a job share between him and Lorenzo Kane until he basically Taylor basically forced Kane to, into retirement by midsummer, right? Because he was productive and Kane wasn't. Um, and like you said, he was going to be the everyday center fielder. And now he's not. So we take away 10 the same 10% or so playing time from Taylor and wait and see how many weeks he's going to miss. And, Alan, as Alan Davidson, as you say, who broke this down, said the you know the Brewers have a lot of options here. Could be some extra Brian Anderson, uh, Jesse Winker, who was slated to be uh, the DH, uh, could get some time in the outfield, and then you have Tyler Nakin and Sal Frelick and Joey Weimer and Luke Void and Sky Bolt and Monty Harrison. You know that those are the names that one of those guys might be squeezing onto the roster in the for the period of Taylor being IL'd. The only one I th think I looked at as far as interest in my fantasy roster was Freelich, and I don't even remember why I thought that, so it can't have been a super compelling case for really for any of them. Uh, in Arizona, shortstop Nick Ahmed is dealing with some left forearm tightness and inflammation not that he was a tremendous fantasy asset, but he's a really good fielder, and the situation could let the Diamondbacks have a gander at some of their other options. Uh, Jake Crumpler covering the story for Playing Time Today at BaseballHQ.com. Who might the options be at shortstop in Phoenix? Yeah, bad news for Ahmed. Like you said, he's uh, you know when he's healthy, he's uh, an elite defender, and 
obviously an asset to that infield, but it's hard to be an elite, elite defender when uh, you can't throw. Uh, so he, he got shut down for a few days to rest the arm. And, uh, you know, he, he and now we've got, uh, you know, this was forearm tightness, I think. And that's on top of prior shoulder problems. So you always worry about the, uh, what do they call this? The kinetic chain, the knee bones connected to the elbow bone. And, you know, the, the pain seems to be moving from spot to spot. Um, in the short term, Geraldo Perdomo probably steps back into the starting shortstop job. He held it down a lot for the book of last year when Ahmed was out. Um, but, you know, it wasn't all that exciting with uh, a 195 batting average and five home runs. Uh, he ran a little bit, but, you know, that's a small consolation for a 195 batting average and five home runs in a full season's work. The Diamondbacks, of course, have aspirations of being better this year, which doesn't really seem to mesh with Geraldo Perdomo getting a lot of playing time. Uh, so Perdomo needs to play if he wants to hold the job until Ahmed gets back or the Diamondbacks get fed up enough and decide to go try curtain number three. Any guesses for who's behind curtain number three? It could be outside the organization, I guess. Yeah. I think the Ahmed injury, the most recent one was his left arm, not his right arm. So it's, oh, okay. it may, may speed up his return to baseball relevance, but gosh, Ray, I, I don't ever remember looking at Nick Ahmed and saying, except in an only league, this is a guy I've got on my list for a possible shortstop or middle, even middle infield position. He just doesn't hit. He just doesn't produce that much uh, offense at all. Sure. And whatever value he has is not rooted in you know his rate stats right it's you know his value proposition when he was younger was because he's a good fielder he's in the lineup every day and he'll get you some sneaky counting stats and if you're suggesting that even when he comes back he's gonna you know need some days off not play every day oh that that value proposition drops up dries up pretty quickly right it does, and when you're batting ninth in what has been a pretty anemic Arizona lineup for the last few years, it hasn't exactly been a ticket to a lot of counting stats anyway. I mean, you get a lot of plate appearances in a lineup that's scoring 20% runs and every less runs than anybody else. It's not that yeah, great. If, if outs are a category in your league, yeah. you should talk. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, Ray, informative as heck so far, just what I expected. Let's take a break so you can hydrate and I can tell our listeners about some great Baseball HQ content. See you in a few. Sounds good. Ray Murphy is a co-general manager and writer at BaseballHQ.com. A quick break here to talk about some great content at BaseballHQ.com and then Ray will be right back with the pitcher's update. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our skills columns, well, it's sleeper time. Analyst Stephen Nickrand finds sleepers among the hitters and the starting pitchers, and, and bullpens analyst Doug Dennis scopes out the sort of sleepers among the relief crews. In Playing Time Tomorrow roster analysis, Dan Marcus runs through the five teams in the National League West, including some young arms ready to shine in Arizona, the corner outfield situation in Los Angeles, and another out-of-nowhere contributor in San Francisco. And Jock Thompson looks at the American League West, including the second base situation in Oakland and first base situations in both Los Angeles and Seattle. 
And in the Big Hurt column, injury analyst Matt Cederholm looks at health scores that don't tell the whole story, including possibly overstated health risks for Aaron Judge and Brandon Woodruff, and understated health risks for Jordan Alvarez, Spencer Strider, C.J. Abrams, and Riley Green. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation and facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse column, injury analysis in the Big Hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential sergers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up. You get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. We've been through the hitters, so let's move on to the pitchers. And once again, we're joined by Baseball HQ co-general manager and writer Ray Murphy. Ray, ready for the pitchers? Let's go. Well, we came into the season with Carlos Rodon climbing up the ADPs after a couple of good seasons seemed to reduce his injury risk. And guess what? Back on the IL, the dreaded forearm strain. This is his throwing arm. Uh, Chris Olson for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. What's going to be the effect on the rotation? It seems like the Yankees are somewhat optimistic that this is a shorter-term injury. They're shutting down Rodon for 7 to 10 days, but no indications of that they're worried about eventual surgery or a multi-month absence or anything like that. So this probably means a few starts to start the season for both Domingo, German, and Clark Schmidt, who were kind of battling for the Frankie Montas rotation spot. And now there's room for both of them. So, you know, German had, you know, expected ERAs just north of four the last couple of seasons, although he had outpitched those a little bit. Um, walk and strikeout rates are, you know, sort of unremarkable. Um, and he's looked okay this spring with uh, one earned run in five or six innings at a seven to one strikeout to walk ratio. Schmidt was really good last year, uh, mostly out of the bullpen. Uh, ERA just over three and 60 innings, but uh, you know, there was some luck involved there in the form of hit and strand rates. He wasn't dominant coming out of the pen, and you would expect that uh, you know, transitioning into the rotation from the bullpen, we usually see some skills slippage there. So, you know, there's some downside there with Schmidt. Um, his XERA was really was already around four, and that could get worse, but you know, really good team context here for both of these guys. So, uh, you, you know, in your um, you know, as you're filling out your rotation you sort of have to be interested. Staying in New York, the Mets took a blow in their rotation. Right-hander Jose Quintana suffered a stress fracture on a left side rib, and it just sounds painful. I don't know if you've ever had any rib rib injuries or anything like that, but, man, they're tough. And for a baseball major league pitcher with all that 
upper body rotation. Gosh, must be terrible. No timeline as yet when Quintana might return, but it seems pretty likely he's not going to be ready for opening day. Uh, Phil Hertz covers the Mets for playing time today. So who figures to pick up the starts that Quintana is going to forego? Yeah, as you're describing that, I'm trying to do the like left-handed arm motion and delivery, and I'm feeling like you know as the arm comes forward, I'm imagining like what the left side of my rib cage feels like when the arm is like pulling it forward, and I'm just like, "Ow!" and my rib's not even broken. So, yeah, that can't be good. You would think that that oh, he's a righty. So either way, um, still not um, still not good news. Um, as far as where the Mets go, Tyler Mago, Joey Lucchese. Alicia Hernandez are all guys they have in camp, at least, who have pitched before. Uh, but I think David Peterson probably gets the first crack here. I think, you know, he was slated for kind of a more swingman role where everyone was healthy coming off of, uh, you know, just under four ERA last year with some pretty decent skills. So, uh, you know, I if you liked him in that, swingman role who could find his way to his to a rotation if an opening pops up then this is good news because the opening is coming sooner it might be bad news in that his draft price probably goes up um as opposed to him being somebody you could sneaky you know get through at the end game of your auction and then have him slide into the rotation in late april or something that's happening earlier and the market will notice but um, again, like with the Yankees, this is a really good team context for pitchers. Great ballpark, great offense, great bullpen. So you got to be interested, I think. He did have a bit of an injury. I think he got hit by a line drive on the foot, but he waved it off in the immediate aftermath. I saw a story where he said it was nothing, a bit of a bruise and nothing too much to worry about. Of course, a bruised foot for a pitcher is no fun and can cause some kinetic problems of the sort you mentioned earlier. Uh, Phil Hertz had that story. He also covered bad news out of the Phillies camp. Their top prospect, right-hander Andrew Painter, is undergoing tests on his throwing elbow. And boy, that doesn't sound very promising. No, it doesn't. And I think breaking news just uh, earlier today, I think that came out as a sprain of the uh, UCL, not a tear. So it's not Tommy John surgery, but I would imagine he's going to be shut down for a while. They're obviously going to be um, super comfortable, super um, cautious with him. I don't even think he's 20 years old yet. So they're going to let that completely resolve itself. And, you know, then I'm sure they're going to send him out back to the minors and let him ramp up very slowly. I would think that if he is an option at all in Philadelphia this year, it's got to be only in the second half if things go well between now and then. The other thing about him, he's only 19. And, you know, we know from what we've been learning over the last four or five years about how these athletes' bodies develop at 19, you're nowhere near done growing. Even your bones are still getting longer and, and haven't finished attaching those growth plates. And gosh, you got to think that any kind of injury to a 19-year-old kid's throwing arm has to be something that they need to be very cognizant of because, of course, they don't want him just for his age 19 year. They want to have him for five or six more years and it doesn't do them any good to throw him out there now, get the injury to be aggravated and then lose, you know, years three through six where they could have had a, a top-notch guy, a top-notch mature guy, and instead have a guy who's, uh, you know, sitting out Tommy John surgery recovery. Uh, I, is it Bailey Falter who figures to step in? Yes, I think that's probably right. 
I was also looking at taking a flyer on Boston left-hander James Paxton, uh, but he came up with a grade one hamstring strain, which doesn't mean it was like right after kindergarten. It, it was likely to start the season on the IL. I think you can confirm now that he is going to start the season on the IL. Yes. Chris Olson covering the story for playing time today at baseballhq.com. So you're up there in Boston. You got a exposure to all that uh, sober, easygoing Boston media. What are you hearing about James Paxton and his latest injury? Yeah, it's really the accumulation of the injuries in Boston. Obviously, it's not breaking news that James Paxton is hurt. James Paxton has been hurt for I don't know, 780 out of the last 800 days or something like that, right? Um, so James Paxton, you know, I guess if there's good news here, it's not arm-related. It's not the sort of chronic back stuff he's had either. Um, if it's a hamstring, it can, it can be fairly easily managed. It doesn't ripple anywhere else. Then maybe he's back sooner than later. Um, but the, the problem for the Red Sox is it's not just James Paxton who's hurt. Garrett Whitlock is also not going to make opening day. Brian Bayo is not going to make opening day. With Whitlock, it's uh, hip surgery he had in the offseason. He's still ramping back up. Bayo had soreness in the right forearm that ended up not being UCL damage, as far as they say. So it's a better scenario than, say, Painter. Uh, it's more like a uh, Carlos Rodon situation, it seems. No, they don't think any of these problems, Paxton, Whitlock, or Bayo, are going to run even through the month of April. But, of course, games start on March 30th, and they need a few starters before these get, before these guys come back later in the first month. So we've reached this up is down, down is up, cats and dogs living together scenario in Boston where – Suddenly, Chris Hale, Chris Sale is the healthy ace of the staff and the workhorse. <laughs> we're like, whoa, how did this yeah, happen? No kidding, right? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, when you put it that way, it just sounds like weird. Yeah, and besides Sale, you know, it's Tanner Houck, um, who seemed to have been coming along a little bit slowly in the spring. He had off-season surgery as well, but um, he's seems like he has not been ruled out for opening day the way everybody else has. So it seems like they're counting on him. Cutter Crawford, who did a lot of swingman work last year, probably jumps into that rotation. And then Kluber and Pavetta. So I guess if opening day was, you know, was this coming week, it would be Sale and Hauk and Pavetta and Kluber and Crawford, which um, – is not reminiscent of the 1971 Oakland A's. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of the 1970 Orioles. Uh, all, all those, work. yeah, all those teams with those great uh, rotations. Yeah, the uh, story—I don't know if you saw it or where—I don't even remember where I saw it. But Chris Sale featured in. It might have been the Athletic, but it might have been a Boston outlet as well. And the subject of it was how he's mellowed out over the last couple of years. And, you know, he was not cutting up jerseys or, or, you know, swearing at guys and getting into fights and stuff. He said uh, that for the first time in his life, he actually enjoys going out to play baseball. And the whoever wrote the story kind of spun it as, here's a reason to think this could be a big year for Chris Sale because he's not so wound up as he has been over the earlier part of his career. But mind you, the earlier part of his career was pretty good. Was, was pretty good. Yeah. You don't want the, um, it's, you know, there's always a, a major league reference to this, right? So it, it's always when the, um, when, when Serrano found Buddha and was like, 
oh, everything is beautiful. And it, oh, that was a nice pitch you struck me out with. And congratulations. And you can't lose the competitive fire, right? Um, but the, um, you know, Sale, I, I, I've, I will admit I've done a 180 on him in the last two months. It was, I think, just after New Year's when the Red Sox had their local winter event. And that was when Sale showed up and said, I'm ready to go. I owe the fans this. I've gotten paid a pile of money in the last three years to do nothing. And I'm ready to, you know, ready to start paying it back and, you know, not actually give the money back. But, yeah. You know, actually, not literally. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and in January, those were just words. Right. But then he showed up to camp. He was on the mound immediately. He's checking all the boxes through the spring here. Oh, and unlike everyone else in this rotation, he's not actually broken now. So, you know, that guy, for all of these reasons, you know, I, I've sort of jumped onto the sale bandwagon here. And, uh, you know, there's a price point at which I will um, chase him in, the, in, in drafts this month. And if you had told me that in November, I would have been like, what happened to Ray and his, you know, practical, rational mind? Yeah, the the story also included a reference to Sale having become a mentor to a lot of the uh, the young pitchers in the Boston staff, relievers and starters alike, and and apparently he's like everybody's favorite teammate now, which is another thing you probably couldn't have said about Chris Sale, uh, especially in his White Sox days. But uh, even after that, as he came over to Boston, he was kind of a curmudgeon, uh, as I understand it, and. Maybe it's just going to be easier for an older guy if he gets along with everybody rather than, you know, carrying around some kind of grudge all the time. It's certainly going to be interesting. I don't think it's the kind of thing that we can, you know, add value to Chris Sale based on these touchy-feely, good-time-talking-stuff notes, but it's not nothing either. I think it's something that we need to pay attention to for sure. The Tigers agreed to sign relief pitcher Trevor Rosenthal. Jeez, here's a guy that just keeps coming back like a, uh, like a zombie in one of those movies. He's a former big league closer. He was actually pretty successful at it. He gets a minor league contract with an invitation to spring training. Tim Cavanaugh covers the Tigers for playing time today. And Ray, we know the Tigers bullpen is far from settled. Is there any possibility that Trevor Rosenthal finds his way into ninth innings again? I mean, we last saw him in the majors in 2020 when his season was ended with thoracic outlet syndrome surgery, which is no small undertaking for a pitcher. But, you know, before he went down that year, you know, he did manage 24 innings with 11 saves and 38 strikeouts in 24 innings. He was really, really good. Um, a 42% strikeout rate and expected ERA under three. But, I mean, control has been a career-long bugaboo, as has health. And I guess the best thing we could say about him is that he picked a Tigers bullpen that is very unsettled. And if he can demonstrate that he's got anything resembling that 2020 and prior decade form, that the job is open for him. Yeah, the last I heard, uh, Alex Lang was the front runner, and certainly Alex Lang is not going to make anybody forget Dennis Eckersley or who was the closer that uh, Detroit had when they were really, really good. And I think he won the Cy Young Award, as a matter of fact. I can't remember. Hernandez? Uh, Willie Hernandez. Sure. Willie Hernandez, yeah. Uh, let's just say that Alex Lang is not Willie Hernandez and leave it at that. Uh, speaking of wily veterans finding their way into shaky bullpens, the Rangers added lefty Will Smith to their late-inning bullpen mix. 
and Wiley veteran Rod Truesdell of BaseballHQ.com covering the story for Playing Time today. What role does Rod see Smith playing other than messing up all our XLV lookups when we're trying to find the Los Angeles catcher? Yeah, we really need to throw middle middle initials on all these guys, don't we? Uh, but Rod says that uh, you know Smith is primarily going to be a setup guy and uh, fairly. I don't. I think I'm not sure I'm willing to use the word good, but versatile um, Texas bullpen. Uh, Smith, you know, let's not forget Smith had 37 saves back in 2011. Uh, nominal closer Jose Leclerc is already nursing a sore neck, but they have other options in that bullpen with Jonathan Hernandez, among others, but Smith could get some opportunities there, either situationally or on a day when a closer is not available or blown up. Uh, He's still 33 and he's shown, you know, good skills even last year in Houston in a role kind of similar to what we're imagining. So uh, yeah, Smith is probably, I I would take, uh, a bet on two through nine saves for him this year. How's that? Yeah, that seems about right. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot of guys in Texas that are in the low yep. double digits or the high single digits as far as saves go. They might just go to some kind of mix and match thing. Unless somebody, they start mix and match and somebody just bursts out of the log jam and says, I'm here and you can trust me and all that kind of stuff. I guess that remains to be seen. And as far as the XL thing, it could have been worse. The Rangers could have signed another Luis Garcia. <laughs> there is the Luis Garcia problem and there's everybody else. For yeah, sure. that's for sure. Uh, I mentioned earlier that Colorado lost second baseman Brendan Rogers to injury. They also appear to be losing a left-hander, Luke, Lucas Gilbreth. And again, the Baseball HQ is not zeroing out his playing time yet, but it does sound like a serious problem because this guy was going to play a role. And they've signed left-hander Brad Hand, speaking of Wiley veterans, to a one-year deal, a former closer in his own right, so what do you think is the way to size up the uh, Colorado bullpen, assuming that Daniel Bard is the is the incumbent and probably figures to start the season getting those ninth inning opportunities? But what do you think in the longer run is going to happen in Colorado? You know, Hand had pretty decent surface numbers for the Phillies last year. Uh, you know, an ERA under three, five saves and 13 holds. The skills weren't they weren't just unremarkable. They were actually pretty bad. 7.6 strikeouts per nine is rough in this day and age. His expected ERA was 462. And that's before we put him in Colorado. Um, you know, that ERA, that expected ERA, that skill level has been going in the wrong direction for the neighborhood of four or five years now. Um, he does have a ground ball tilt. He does limit the home runs. So maybe that limits the, downside of Coors Field, but as we always talk about, Coors isn't just about the home runs. Coors is about the expanses in the outfield and everything. And I mean, this is not a good Rockies bullpen. So, uh, you know, if he gets off to a good start there, are, you know, he could get expanded opportunities there, but I would not be uh, chasing this one too hard. And finally, Ray, uh, in Tampa, the Rays right-hander Tyler Glasnow had an MRI to determine the severity of an oblique injury he sustained while throwing to hitters on Monday. Not good news. No, that MRI came back with a grade two strain of the oblique. So I think that's even worse than the uh, 
Sia Suzuki won. And I think it's worse to begin with because A, Glasnow's a pitcher and B, Glasnow's health track record uh, as he tries to come back from missing last season, you know, has a few uh, few negative marks on it already. Um, Chris Olson covered this for us and said that uh, the typical recovery from this is six to eight weeks. So, well, you know, you can say even in terms of regular season, Glasnow probably misses a month. Um, in terms of where the Rays turn from here, Luis Patino and Yadi Chirinos are probably the leading candidates to replace Glass now in the rotation. But because this is the Rays, it could be both of them in tag team. It could be an opener in front of them. It could be Jalen Beeks. It could be whatever else the the uh, Rays dreamed up in their um, offseason seminars on how to use their pitchers more creatively because they raised the bar on that every year. Could be another Luis Garcia. <laughs> exactly. As yet undiscovered Luis X Garcia. <laughs> Ray, Not ruin anything out. <laughs> Ray, thanks very much for helping us out. It was very interesting and informative, as it always is, and I'm sure we'll talk with you again real soon. You bet. Thanks, PD. Ray Murphy is the co-general manager and writer at BaseballHQ.com and helps cover the news for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 10th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number four of the 2023 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert from BaseballHQ.com, MarketWatch commentator Ray Murphy is a great manager behind the scenes at Baseball HQ and Baseball HQ Radio, an excellent fantasy baseball analyst and writer, and of course, a top-notch guest here on the Baseball HQ Radio podcast. I am Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed, at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Google Pods, Apple Pods, Pocket Cast, Spotify, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast growing and going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Tuesday with a Tuesday Expert Edition featuring a special guest expert. That's another Tuesday Expert Edition on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. We'll talk with you Tuesday. And for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. 
Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.